Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Robstad. Good day to you guys. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. Good to see you, Joe. Good to see Dave. All right. On today's podcast, are human beings unique? Are we exceptional? Ken will explore how humans differ on this episode, part one of two. All right, Ken, give us the background for this one. Uh, well, recently, Reasons to Believe did a workshop uh, where we looked at the question, uh, how do human beings differ from the animals? And of course, the option is, is it merely in degree or is it in kind? Uh, or is there some kind of continuum, if, if you will? And uh, so I did a lot of thinking. Now I've written on this topic in a couple of my books. Um, I have a chapter in Seven Truths That Changed the World. It happens to be chapter 12 entitled How Human Beings Differ. But I also addressed it in my book, um, A World of Difference, where I have a chapter on human beings. So our, our listeners can, can track with that. So I'm going to introduce some of the ideas from a biblical point of view. Are there ways humans differ only in degree? Are there other ways humans differ uh, in kind? So that's our topic, kind of a Christian anthropology. Wonderful. And of course, this idea seems to be constantly under attack. And there's a temptation, I think, to blur the, blur the lines a bit. I think that's right. I think the question of human exceptionalism is controversial. Uh, someone like the uh, bioethicist uh, at Princeton, Peter Singer, he has said, for example, to insist that human beings are exceptional creatures is what he calls speciesism, which he, he, he says is equivalent to a type of racism or sexism. So mm. we live in a a period in which people have sharp differences, no doubt about it. Yeah. Well, let me begin with a quotation, if I could. Uh, this comes from one of my intellectual heroes. It's Mortimer J. Adler uh, from his book, The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. Adler says, quote, it is impossible for anyone who understands the distinction between difference in degree and difference in kind to assert in the face of available evidence that man differs only in degree from the animals. Now, Adler wrote a book on that. It's entitled The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. And for our workshop, I did a little extra reading on this topic. And Adler has an article. Uh, it's available on the web. It's from the Mortimer J. Adler archive. It's entitled The Confusion of the Animalists. And again, it's taken from uh, a lot of his thinking in the book, The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. What I'd like to do is give you a couple quotations from Adler here to kind of give us uh, maybe a starting point. He says in this article, the problem of how man differs from the animals in degree or in kind is not purely a philosophical problem nor is it purely a scientific problem. It is a mixed problem, both scientific and philosophical, the solution to which requires knowledge of relevant scientific evidence and also philosophical competence in the interpretation of that evidence. Now, 
Adler at this point doesn't say anything about theological issues, but I think he would approve of that. And what I want to begin here is uh, I think we I think it's best to think of an integrative model. When we look at human beings and compare them to the animals, I think we have to look clearly at what, what science tells us. Uh, we need to be careful in the way we interpret it. So we need some sophistication philosophically. And then of course the Bible talks about humans being made in the image of God. So I think Adler would agree with that. Now, here is his definition of how things differ in degree as opposed to kind. He says, quote, men and other animals differ in degree if both possess the same trait, but one possesses more of it, the other less. So again, that's just degree. If, if human beings have uh, similar qualities to the animals and only more of it, then he's gonna put that in the category of difference of degree. He goes on to say, men and other animals differ in kind if men either have certain powers or perform certain acts that are not present in other animals in the slightest degree. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Um, he, he says, if human beings have certain powers, and I take that to mean that we have certain qualities or characteristics, our rationality, our morality, our spirituality, but he also talks about acts. So from, a, from Adler's point of view, he's asserting that if humans are different in kind, we will see it both in their qualities and in the way they live and, and act, so to speak. Now, um, Again, this, this comes out very controversial uh, in society. I mentioned uh, Peter Singer, um, who, of course, uh, believes human beings are merely different in degree because he's an, he is an evolutionist. He is a naturalist. And if I could give uh, props to Peter Singer, I would say I think he, uh, to the best of my knowledge, is attempting to live consistently with his naturalist worldview. Now, he's not always consistent because he would say, for example, that human beings, unlike certain farm animals, don't have uh, a self-awareness at a very early state. So infants are not self-aware. He says other animals are, and he says then those farm animals have uh, more rights than, than infants. Of course, he would also extend that to people with Alzheimer's. They, they're not self-aware. Of course, uh, part of the challenge is trying to live consistent with your worldview. When, when Peter Singer's mother suffered Alzheimer's or dementia, he said, I, I, you know, I couldn't uh, pull the plug, so to speak. Uh, and I can understand that. It's difficult you know, to kind of think through these issues. But you know, here, here's a question that Adler raises. He says, only man is a person with inherent dignity and inherent rights. All other living organisms, uh, along with inanimate substances, are merely things having neither inherent dignity nor inherent rights. If other animals have, to some degree, inherent dignity and rights, then man's killing of other animals for the sake of nutrient 
or clothing is murder and is reprehensible for the same reason that cannibalistic practices are. Then he says this, similarly, man's use of other animals as beasts of burden or as chattel is enslavement and is responsible for the same reason that the enslavement of men is reprehensible. Reprehensible, I should have said, rather than responsible. So this is a this is an interesting point of view. If you if you take the view that humans are merely different in degree, and you think that they have rights, such as Peter Singer, well, does that mean we should stop eating meat? Does that mean we should stop using animals? Uh, the this is a very controversial uh, point of view these days, but classically it it was not controversial. Uh, in a classical context, humans were seen as uh, being special, unique, uh, exceptional, if you will. Guys, what I'd like to do now is to give what I think is more of a biblical perspective on this uh, topic. And I would like to say that I think that uh, the question of do humans differ merely in degree or in kind I would say that in some ways, uh, humans differ only in degree. And what I mean by that, um, I think that, for example, uh, from a biblical perspective, certain physical similarities, maybe anatomical, physiological, biochemical, genetic, I think we should expect that kind of thing. I think uh, the chimpanzees and humans, for example, have more than 90% similarity when it comes to their DNA. Well, I'm not surprised by that. Why? Well, from a biblical point of view, um, in the book of Genesis, Genesis 2.7, Genesis 2.19, it says that both human beings and animals were made from the dust of the ground. So we come from the same stuff. Dave might say we come from stardust, right? Right. There's going to be some similarities, I think. I think that's a reasonable inference to, to draw. Uh, and yet, I think we should also see other ways in which humans are clearly in a different category. So it's not merely a continuum or a, a range. I think we should see in some ways there is going to be differences merely in degree, but in other ways, it's really going to be a difference in kind. And uh, again, I think because uh, while we're both created from the dust of the ground, humankind was given the breath of God. Um, and that makes all the difference, uh, uh, if you will. So um, specific qualities and traits set people apart from other creatures. And uh, that would be because of the, the image of God. Questions, comments, before we begin to look at some of the ways in, in which human beings, I think, differ clearly in kind. So, go ahead, Ken. Okay. Great. All right. Well, the first one is, I'm going to say that human beings have an inherent spiritual and religious nature, an inherent spiritual and religious nature. And what I mean by that is it seems that all people really pursue spiritual truth. Uh, for example, I would say even secular people 
give indication of looking for some kind of uh, ultimate concern. I think it was the American philosopher of religion, Paul Tillich, uh, who was not a classical Christian by any means of imagination. But he said, look, all people, including secular people, they look for an ultimate concern. Uh, from a Judeo-Christian point of view, people have deep-seated religious beliefs. They engage in religious rituals. And here I'm thinking about prayer and worship. Uh, they pursue the, the God who is transcendent, uh, so much so that many philosophers have called human beings homo religiosus, Latin for the religious man or the religious person, if you will. And um, Harold Titus, who has written a uh, book on philosophy that I appreciate very much, uh, he has said that even agnostics and atheists, quote, tend to replace a personal God with an impersonal one, the state, race, some process in nature or devotion to the search for truth or some other ideal, close quote. I think that that's right. I think that human beings, if we were to be as objective as we can, um, even though uh, some people don't believe in a, a God, so to speak, or a specific God or gods, uh, they gravitate very easily to uh, things like their selves, their own individual uh, needs, or they develop uh, ideas about saving the planet, uh, or they have, you know, particular political perspectives. And uh, here, of course, I'm, I'm really uh, talking about some of the things that St. Augustine said. St. Augustine said that when human beings are fallen, uh, first of all, they're created to be lovers and worshipers. But in, in the fall, we don't stop being lovers and worshipers. We start worshiping uh, nature. We start, uh, we, we become idolaters and we move toward things that we, that we love. We look for uh, fulfillment in food and in sex um, and in prestige. And all of those things, of course, are good things, but they were never intended to give you ultimate satisfaction. And so fallen human beings become, in Augustine's way of thinking, and I think he's right. And of course, it's nothing new. I think he's clearly reading the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 and 2, for example, that human beings gravitate toward something of that what means. Even Socrates, uh, the great Greek philosopher, who in some ways is kind of the ideal philosopher, his dates are 470 to 399 B.C., uh, he is, of course, known for that great statement, the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, so human beings, they're unique in the sense that they contemplate what I would call the big questions of life. And now animals, uh, though they're highly intelligent, they don't show any sign of spirituality or concern for ultimate issues. It seems that only human beings, for example, are aware of their imminent death. You know, life's short. Uh, and so we contemplate and sometimes we worry. We have anxiety about death. We think about our immortality. I think all of these 
are part of that first idea uh, that human beings have an inherent spiritual and uh, religious nature. And yet I also want to add this. I think in our time, it's very important that we don't come away as Christians conveying the idea that our view of human beings being different in kind means that we're disrespecting or unimpressed or don't care about the animals. I mean, they are truly extraordinary. You know, I was, I was reading about the, the uh, sense of smell in a bear. I mean, it can smell things a couple miles away. Animals have uh, ability to, you know, to travel at great speeds. Um, you know, birds are able to look and see star patterns and fly north or south. Um, to say that human beings are special or to say they're unique or to say that they are um, exceptional or different in kind, it is not to say that the animals are not truly amazing and uh, that there aren't things that we also share, share in common. Yeah. I have a question. This is a question that will probably be relevant to all the different uh, points that you'll make about how uh, humans are exceptional. But uh, first of all, does how does the secularist uh, respond to this particular one? And you know, but that we have an inherent spiritual and religious nature. Now, there's always the question of how do you decide whether a chimpanzee, for instance, has these kinds of characteristics, uh, but, but how does the secularist uh, respond to this? Do they just ignore it or do they, do they have uh, material or our ideas or, you know? Well, at our workshop, um, I mentioned before that we had uh, two scientists who came and one identified as an agnostic, maybe the other as well, um, they weren't uh, straightforward about, you know, what they thought about God, but they were skeptical, no doubt about it. Um, well, one of them said that human beings are on a continuum. Um, you know, sometimes the, it's, the degrees aren't very far apart. Sometimes they're a little large, if you will, but it's, but it's best to think of it in their minds as a continuum not as an, in a different category. And of course, some of them, uh, one of the scientists argued that uh, if you look at you know, the chimpanzees, uh, he, he said they show signs of, of uh, complex thinking. He said they, they can be empathetic. They have an awareness of uh, right and wrong. Now, the, the, that's pretty strong. Uh, I'm not sure that I accept that kind of viewpoint, but I think they would push back on these ideas. So I, I think what I heard was that maybe in their minds, a continuum would be better. So you have sometimes very little difference and other times more difference. Um, and so part of it, Dave, was how do you define these words? How do you find exceptional? Right. Mm -hmm. so that's, that's part of the challenge. Yeah. Uh, Ken, another question on this one uh, concerning the word inherent. Human beings have 
an inherent spiritual and religious nature. Uh, I imagine somebody who's a skeptic, maybe somebody like Michael Shermer, might say that this spiritual religious nature developed over time rather than was inherent. That is, human beings figured out at some point that uh, there was some kind of deity responsible for whether crops grew or they didn't grow, or if human beings were to succeed in, in societies, they needed to develop a, a fear of a, of a god in the sky type of thing. Uh, you know what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. What, what would be your reply? Well, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, culture and society play critical roles in the way we come to uh, express our, our beliefs. Um, you know, all of us live in society, all of us are, experience culture, but I, I don't think that that um, tells us whether it's true or not. I mean, I have heard um, Michael Shermer and Lawrence Krauss and other secular people uh, say, for example, that there's a reason why we believe in God and we believed in the afterlife and objective morality, because those beliefs somehow gave us uh, survival. Uh, you know, they, they, they uh, helped our survivability by believing those things. Of course, I immediately think, really? Well, then, since you think they're false, does that mean evolution put false beliefs in our minds? You know, there, it's, it's one thing to say that we learn cultural acceptance uh, by the society in which we live, but that's different from where it's grounded. And um, I, I, think, I think Shermer and Krauss and the secular perspective, they have a real hard time explaining morality. Uh, because again, if these things are the product of our evolution, uh, then, you know, did we decide them to, to be true? So th that's kind of how I would respond to, to that question. Uh, I'm very troubled when uh, they say that evolution uh, put false beliefs in our mind. Um, I think we have to have true beliefs to, to encounter one, reality. One of those false beliefs could be evolution. Well, that's right. Uh, so you got to be careful lest it become, you know, convoluted, uh, self-defeating. Um, yeah. Well, let's move on to the second point that I make. Again, this is in Seven Truths That Changed the World. Uh, it's also in a world of difference that I've written about. My, my second point is that human beings possess unique intellectual, cultural, and communicative abilities. Now, I think that human beings are capable of abstract reasoning. They're able to recognize, apply, and communicate the foundational principles of logic, for example. And I raised that question uh, during one of our discussions of our workshop. I said, look, um, you know, human beings are able to recognize the universal principles of logic, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle. Human beings uh, have mathematical uh, appreciation. I said, essentially, look, when, when thoughtful people want to solve problems, they go to the tool chest. And the tool chest is logic. The tool chest is math. The, the tool chest is principles of, of scientific thought. 
that seems to set people apart. Um, and so only human minds develop propositions. Only human minds develop arguments. We draw inferences. We recognize universal principles. Uh, we value logic, validity, coherence, truth. Uh, and we recognize, for example, that the physical universe corresponds to abstract mathematical theorems. I raised that question. I said, you know, when you talk about uh, humans differing only in degree rather than kind, you know, how is it that someone like Einstein could come up with a mathematical principle that would actually correspond to reality? Of course, the response I got was, well, he didn't do it out of thin air. It, he was building on the ideas of other people, and I completely agree. Um, you know, I've come to appreciate that Einstein's general relativity was not a complete reversal to uh, Newton's ideas of physics, but it does seem that human beings are in a different category in our ability to appeal and use logic, our, our use of mathematics, um, our appreciation uh, of uh, abstract ideas. Now, I also wanna convey here that human beings communicate their conceptual apprehension of truth through what we call complex symbols or language. So propositional language, it's intricate, it's complex, it's flexible. Um, you know, language is one of the things that many people think, uh, including some scientists, that it sets us apart from the bipedal primates. Um, this use of symbolism, this capacity to uh, communicate in uh, words. Now, one of the responses at the conference by one of the secular uh, individuals. And by the way, I want to give them a lot of credit. I mean, they came into a, a, a basic environment where they were the only two that believed uh, some of their ideas, but they came, they were articulate, they were thoughtful. And of course, we appreciated that. We, we wanted, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about Reasons to Believe is we want to hear what other people think and how their worldview, how their approach might differ. It may, it may sharpen our scientific model, if you will. Well, it seems that human beings are different in their capacity to, to uh, communicate language. Now, one of the things that was said by one of our, our secular uh, contributors, they said, look, um, you know, chimpanzees are able to seemingly communicate and teach each other. They're, they're able to develop uh, uh, an understanding of many words and uh, you know things of that nature. And, and of course, of course now I, I want to make a point of reasoning that I did bring up. I said, you know, when it comes to this question of how human beings are like and unlike animals, I said, I think there are two areas we need to be very careful, and that is, it's possible that we're engaged in circular reasoning. Uh, this is called the petitio principi in Latin. Uh, it's called begging the question. Um, and, and essentially is you, rather than reasoning from your premises and demonstrating your conclusion or evidencing your conclusion, 
rather you smuggle your conclusion into the, the premises. And, and what I mean by that is if you believe, for example, that human beings are made in the image of God, you may, it may color your reasoning. But it's also true that if you believe human beings have evolved and that the great apes or the bipedal primates are in some ways our relatives, it's very easy to allow that to color. And of course, my colleague, Mark Perez, who uh, uh, has written a book with me on the, on the question of logic and reasoning and biases, you know, he, he brings up, for example, uh, the question of confirmation bias. And, and here's, here's what Mark Perez has written. Mark says, confirmation bias is the tendency to seek data to support one's own hypothesis and ignore or not see the data that do not conform your hypothesis. Nobel Prize winner Daniel uh, Kahneman describes the problem, quote, contrary to the rules of philosophers of science who advise testing hypotheses by trying to refute them, people and scientists quite often seek data that are likely to be compatible with their beliefs they currently hold. Well, I think all of us have to be careful about that. I think uh, I think it was really helpful to to hear uh, uh, some of the some of the secularists come in and talk about similarities between animals. So I think both both sides need to guard against that. And uh, what I think makes logical fallacies so problematic is that some of them are very easy to commit and very hard to detect. And as my uh, co-author, uh, Mark Perez would say, it's so easy to begin with a bias. I mean, we seem to, we seem to be looking for confirmation and, and scientists do it. They have a hypothesis. They are looking at the data. It's good if the data confirms their hypothesis. But remember, worldview ideas are also part of that. Your worldview is going to tell you what's, what's possible. Now, the response on, on the part of the two secular scientists is they say, yeah, you're right, Ken. Human beings uh, can be biased. He, one of the scientists said scientists could be just as biased as you know the average individual person. But they both assured me that they're very critical of the data uh, that they they received. So, you know, these are these are questions I think we have to we have to approach carefully. This is why I think that integrative approach is very helpful. Uh, I want to hear what the what the best science says. I want the philosophers to weigh in, but as a Christian, I have to. I have to receive theological revelation, if you will. Does that make sense? Does it? Do you see the concern that I think all of us should have? Um, you know, it's easy for us to give in to confirmation bias. It's easy for us to kind of assume our conclusions from the front end. And, you know, that's one of the contributions, I think, that the presuppositional approach to apologetic gives. Be careful of your presuppositions. None of us are neutral. Um, and of course, those are worldview indications. Make sense? Yes. Yep. 
Well, let's uh, let's move on to a a, a third one here. Uh, again, I'm talking about uh, how human beings differ. Uh, we've talked uh, about two in particular. A third one is that human beings are conscious of time, reality, and truth. Human beings are conscious of time, reality, and truth. So it seems to me that only human beings recollect the past. Only human beings recognize the present moment. And only human beings anticipate the future. Uh, we live our lives within uh, and aware of the constraints of, of things like time. Uh, and, you know, as Hugh Ross would say, we want to transcend time. We want to live forever. So this idea that we live in time, um, that there is a reality out there and the classical interpretation of truth would be if your belief corresponds to reality, then you know the truth. If two plus two equals four rather than five, uh, and you believe it's four and not five, then you have the truth. This is the correspondence view of truth. Uh, human beings, again, I think are the only creatures on the planet that pursue truth. Uh, therefore, they develop uh, philosophy, they develop science, mathematics, logic, the arts, a religious worldview. I mean, it, it's human beings that talk about metaphysics. What is ultimate reality? It's only human beings that care about what philosophers call epistemology. What is knowledge? How, how, how can I know that I have the, the truth? And then, of course, what's, what's rational, logical, mathematical? These seem to be paramount questions, but seemingly only for human beings. So let me just ask this question again. How do you decide that an animal doesn't have this? I mean, are we saying that animals are not conscious of time? For this to be an exceptional quality, a power that the other creature doesn't have, right. are they not conscious of time, reality, and truth? Well, what's interesting is I think to some degree they are. I mean, you know, you think about animals, uh, various animals, you know, they, they're aware of the seasons. They're aware of changes. Uh, they have, they seem to have some of these types of qualities, uh, but they don't seem to move into a, a category where, you know, they, they change they changed the nature of the world. Let me use this illustration. You know, there was discussion about tool use at our workshop. So, you know, human beings are not the only ones who create tools. You know, birds make nests, um, uh, various animals, beavers make dams. Uh, th they showed a, a video where, you know, certain chimpanzees use kind of tools in combination. Uh, to kind of get at food and things of that nature. Of course, my response was, but do they create the natural sciences? Um, you know, uh, Mortimer Adler talks uh, about a particular type of tool making. Let me, let me draw out the quotation here. Um, he talks about, uh, he talks about what he calls, um, machinofacture, let me, let me read the quotation. 
He says, only men fashion tools not for immediate use, but for future action in remote but foreseeable contingencies. Other so-called tool-making animals improvise instruments that they immediately employ in the same perpetual context, perceptual context, which led to the improvisation. Then he says this, he says, only, me, only men uh, machinofacture products as well as manufacture them. And what he means is human beings produce things first by making blueprints that incorporate the specifics of the product to be made, and then by creating dyes for the reproduction of the specific item out of plastic materials. He says, no other animal machinofactures, I guess that's a, an invented word for Adler, uh, to, to any degree. So I asked the question, I said, look, I think it is fascinating that animals use tools. Uh, they are obviously uh, far from unintelligent. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times animals are more intuitive. They're sometimes they're a lot better at getting food or, um, you know, traversing uh, the planet. And, you know, it was brought up that that certain, uh, you know, uh, certain animals and their ability to track prey have these incredible skills, speed, um, you know, maneuverability. But do they create by devising blueprints? Do they then move to create that based upon those blueprints? Dave, I, I think that it is, I, I think you've raised a legitimate question. It is hard to know exactly what's going on in the mind of the animals. And I have to say, listening to two of these secular scientists, when I went home, I had a little more appreciation for my two dogs, <laughs> uh, which, which were the first animals for humans to domesticate. Uh, and, you know, I was watching a 60 Minutes program a number of years ago where a dog learned to identify, you know, hundreds of, of uh, toys. The, the, the owner would say, hey, go get this. And they'd go and get it back. Well, I completely agree. I don't want to underestimate animals. And I certainly don't want to leave people with the impression that to think humans are special or unique or exceptional uh, somehow disrespects the incredible qualities God has given to animals. But Dave, when it comes to philosophy, when it comes to science, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to create kind of complicated tools to help you solve the problem. It's another thing to develop the natural sciences. I, I would think uh, that, you know, the counter might be on the part of the secularist is, well, we're seeing these kinds of qualities in a very primitive form. And when they developed, they developed into what we are today. In other words, just we're just an extension. Uh, we have a more developed form that then led to greater capabilities, you know, greater inventions and Dave, you must have been at the at the at the workshop because that's exactly what they said. They said, "Look, um, yeah, we see certain qualities. It it seems like, for example, uh, that you know these qualities are more modest, 
but they're there, that, it, that animals think about solving problems. Um, they even conveyed the idea that humans seem to have, excuse me, that animals, high level animals, you right. know, talking about chimpanzees and dolphins and elephants, et cetera, that they have, uh, they have these qualities, but in more modest form. And it's just, it's just a difference in degree. We have a lot more of it, but I dispute that. I dispute that in the sense that uh, if Adler is right, that we have both um, these powers and acts, um, you know, I'm going to say in our next program, you know, human beings are political animals. Human beings are religious animals. Human beings develop uh, constitution. We vote on things. Now, of course, the point of view expressed by the secular scientists at our workshop was exactly what you said. Well, there's order within the kingdom of the chimpanzees. They have to bow. There seems to be an awareness of guilt. Of course, one of one of the uh, Christian scholars said, well, is it shame or is it genuine guilt? Um, but again, I would point out from a biblical point of view, I think we should expect that so in some ways, these animals are going to be similar to us, but in other ways, I think there should be a category distinction. And I think the three that we've talked about, now let me, let me take up a little bit more of this consciousness of time, reality, and truth. I think animals have keen intuition, a, a sense of concrete time. Maybe that's the best way of responding to that, Dave. Uh, in terms of concrete time, they, they even surpass that of humans. Birds seem to be attuned to the changes of the seasons, but animals lack the capacity for abstract abstractions about time. Uh, for example, they don't seem to ponder history. They uh, don't seem to be aware of reality uh, in a metaphysical or epistemological or a logical sense. So those are, those are three. Now, um, let me come back to a couple of ideas uh, in terms of, of uh, Mortimer Adler's comments. You know, if we, were to, uh, if we were to say that human beings are merely different in degree, if, if, if we were to accept the position that we're on a continuum and uh, that, that it's, you know, animals... Uh, have less, humans have more, uh, but there's no, there's no category difference. There's no difference in kind. Well, would that mean that we would have to stop eating animals? <laughs> would that mean that we would have to stop using them as beasts of burden? Um, well, I, I think the answer is clear um, from the mind of Peter Singer. You know, he says that um, uh, speciesism should be equated with things like sexism and racism. Now, what I want to underscore here is how important our worldviews are. And I don't want to, um, well, let me put it in the positive. I want to hear what our scientists are saying about the qualities that these animals have. And I want to look very carefully at the data and what the data shows. Uh, 
but the data has to be interpreted. Um, philosophers need to weigh in. Theologians need to weigh in. And um, I think there are times where it is very easy to kind of come to the conclusion that you're already primed to accept. Um, you know, uh, so at least at this stage, I'm willing to say that human beings have similarities to animals. We talked about, you know, physiological, anatomical uh, types of differences, ge genetic similarities. But when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to things like uh, our communicative abilities, language, um, uh, symbolism, uh, and then finally, when it comes to consciousness of time, reality, and truth, those seem to be category differences. There, there seems to be kind. And by the way, there are also secular scientists. Well, let me get Ian Tattersall is one of them. He's willing to say humans are exceptional. By the way, one of the scientists said to me, he goes, well, he says, I do think human beings are exceptional. But again, I think they would put it on the continuum. Right. That's the way they would think about it. It, it seems like the, the, in the end, we're taking into account a revelation from God that, that, that clarifies this issue. And, and they're not. The, the, the Bible, the, God's revelation of us being made in his image and some of the things that are said about mankind are not accepted. That's where the worldview idea comes into play. So we do have a bias, but our bias is based on the acceptance of this revelation. And, you know, we, we talked about uh, at the workshop, we talked a little bit about um, the idea that human beings have dignity, they have inherent value because they're made in the image of God, but not just because of that. We also believe that God took a human nature, became man in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus was a single person with both the divine and human nature. God couldn't have become man if there's something fundamentally uh, wrong with uh, hum humanity. Uh, and of course, we, we have uh, the issue of sin. Uh, and that's, that's something I want to talk a little bit more in our next program. But remember what, uh, remember what Blaise Pascal said. Pascal, a physicist, a mathematician, developed probability theory, so logician, was also a, a, a creator, uh, calculating machine in the 17th century is pretty, pretty neat to me. Um, well, he said human beings are an enigma. They're a puzzle. They're a riddle of greatness and wretchedness. Uh, identifying the greatness, I think, reasonably in the Imago Dei, the image of God, but we're also fallen. Um, you know, I don't think you need the devil to explain the Holocaust. That's not to say that the devil didn't relish in God's chosen people being annihilated on the earth, but human beings are fallen. And uh, one of the points that Jeff made, I, th I thought it was very thoughtful, that human beings are capable of creating technology that can truly enhance other people. We talked a little bit about transhumanism, you know, 
these enhancement technologies that can help ease people's pain and suffering. But that same technology could, could also potentially destroy hundreds of millions of people uh, when it comes to you know, weapons. So I wanna return to that tool issue, but uh, uh, we'll do that a little bit later in our next program. Sounds good. Uh, Ken, you mentioned that you have written about this. Can you repeat the uh, book or two that you referenced earlier? Yes, um, I have written about this in um, chapter 12 of uh, my book, Seven Truths That Changed the World, where I look at, at uh, human beings, you know, the idea that human beings are unique and special. I do the same thing, I think, in chapter 10 of A World of Difference. But I also want to encourage people to take a look at the book that Fuzz Rana and Hugh Ross teamed up on. And that is the book, Who is Adam? Where they talk about these things from more of a less philosophical, more scientific uh, orientation. And of course, I want people to go to Mortimer Adler's work, um, again, entitled The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. So, and, and also take a look at Peter Singer and others who, Ian Tattersall, scientists who, who look at these things a, a little bit differently. All right, thank you for that. Plenty of reading material for anyone who wants to follow up. And we'll talk about this more on the next podcast, as you mentioned, Ken. In the meantime, uh, let us know your comments and maybe a question on this topic. We'll be glad to read your comment here and consider a question for a future podcast. Reach out to Ken via Twitter. That's at RTB underscore case samples. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.